Hey everyone, welcome to the Millhouse Podcast. This week we sat down with Jeff Maggio, aka Lunker Dog. Many people know Jeff as a social media fishing celebrity, but the few people who really know his true core will tell you that Jeff is a passionate, heartfelt, real guy who takes his job very seriously. We chat about how Lunker Dog originated, the finer aspects of bait fishing for tarpon, and the major sewage leaks that have been spewing millions of gallons of sewage in the Broward County's intercoastal waterways. We hope you enjoy the show. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Do you remember the uh, the first time we fished? Yeah, I remember the first time we fished. And let me tell you, let me tell you, we get to the dock, and I think Nikki kind of knew who you were and and all the great stuff you were doing down there. And and uh, obviously, we like to fish, whether it be with a fly or with a mullet or with you know plugs. We get to the dock. I saw your boat, and I described it later. Actually, earlier to Nikki, it was like a trash can with a prop. <laughs> and your and your gas tank in the back was like a, an oversized water bottle with some fuel in it, and your bait well was overflowing. We had finger mullets swimming in the bottom of the boat back by the transom. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know. But yeah. obviously, we had a not only a great time, uh, but you are a fishing fool. Ah, I try, I try, I try. But the old skiff. Um, would you really call it a skiff? Yeah, call it the old skiff. You know, I've had that thing almost 20 years what now. What was it? What actually, what kind of boat was That's it? It's called a maritime skiff. I saw some um, I saw some um, lobster fishermen up in Massachusetts coming through an inlet, Situate Harbor. And, uh, you know, they got the crazy tides and the, and the rocks and everything. But they're stacked, the lobster pots on this thing, like 10 high. And he's rolling through the inlet, you know, through the surf and everything. And I'm watching it and I'm like, man. Like I could load up like four big dudes in that, plus have my bait in that, and roll through, you know, government cut and Port Everglades and deal with the uh, boat waves and everything that we deal with. So I bought one, never been in one, and the guy that I bought it from actually ran the company up in Massachusetts was such an asshole. Oh, he was the worst. In what way? Well, like there was no dealers. You know, I think the they had some dealers up in uh, Maine and Massachusetts, maybe New Jersey. But being from Florida, um, there was no dealer. So I called him directly, which seemed like it irritated him. 
So he says, well, you know, um, we have a dealer network. I says, well, I'm in South Florida. I said, you don't have a dealer down here. So I called you. He says, well, you know, you're not going to get a discount. I said, dude, I didn't ask for a discount. I want a boat. Right. I said, I just need the boat being made. So he's like, well, I guess I'll make you one, but you're going to have to buy it through the guy closest to you. I said, well, where's that? And then he looked it up and there was somebody like by the Chesapeake or whatever that was a dealer. And I actually had to pay the dealer and then drive to Massachusetts to get the boat from the shop. And um, I'm not sure why I stuck with that, but 20 years later, I'm glad I did. Because I love that. Yeah, it's a great boat. You still have it? Yeah, still have it on my third engine. Is there a name for it? Do you have a name for it? Uh, The the, the cork? You know, it's funny because (laughs) I took Carl Ball out in the the skiff and he goes, oh, so this is the pig pen. (laughs) It's not a a skiff. And I think that's what you called it. And I says, you know, I should name the boat the pig pen. (laughs) pen. (laughs) But it's cool because- um, It's effective. It works. And uh, I run that thing with the six gallon tank. At the end no, of, it's a six-gallon water bottle. <laughs> well, at the end of every trip, that easy, thing, easy. At the end of every trip, that thing's empty. And the biggest issues people have, you know, is their fuel. You know, when you have engine issues, nine out of ten times, it's because you got fuel issues. So these bigger tanks that are under the decks and stuff get the crap in it, and you need like three filters, and then your filters friggin' don't work, and so on and so forth. But in the, anyway, at the end of the day, the madness works. Right, right. So anyway, we keep it simple over there in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> <laughs> at least I do. I might be the only one. I love it. <laughs> it's funny because the bow, the bow looks kind of like a panga, right? And it's not a skiff, but it's a. But it's no, a. You can call it a skiff. It's a mullet fishing machine. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Well, I think it's was, it was, it was a skiff. You know, maybe it's not like a polling skiff <laughs> but it's a skiff it's a skiff i mean seriously you know no, no bilge pump you know no inner deck oh that's right yeah i remember yeah. that so you know and then if you and if your if your bait well does you know take a shit on you then you know the fish live right in the back of the boat anyway so that's good. what i saw <laughs> what um tell me about your fishing experience i mean obviously you have fished offshore a fair amount mm-hmm. When did the first inclination come to you, like, I want to be a fisherman? What was your early years like? What did you do? How did fishing come into play? Yeah, well, see, my dad was big into, um, you know, the offshore scene. As a matter of fact, the first thing that my father ever fished for were the bluefin tuna up in Massachusetts, and that was in the early 70s. And um, he really got addicted to the to the fishing, and then the winter would come, and then he couldn't fish. So he moved to Fort Lauderdale so he could constantly fish. So I kind of was um, just always next to him. And then he built some boats for himself um, just to fish that ended up being really nice boats. And um, he fell into being a custom boat builder because of that. And then very shortly after that, he got very friendly with a bunch of Venezuelan dudes. And um, they asked him to fish on the International Ilta team with him. So my dad went all over the world fishing blue marlin and white marlin. And um, I was pretty young at the time. Um, This is in the mid-80s, so I'm like, you know, 13, 14 years old. And that's when I learned that, you know, you could actually make money fishing. Um, But I kind of took the opposite approach um, shortly after that is I went to college and I got out of college and I figured, well, I need to go out there and make a few million bucks so I can buy a sport fish boat and travel around the Caribbean and do the, the, the fishing like my old man and his buddies did. And um, 
don't know, got out of school and worked real hard and made a few bucks, but I realized that um, I probably wasn't going to get there financially. And um, so I worked on big boats, part-time as a mate, mostly marlin tournaments and sailfish tournaments. But when it was rough, um, guys wanted me to take them snook and tarpon fishing. You know, um, a lot of older guys had a lot of dough and they'd come down to do the offshore thing and the weather would be totally horrible. And I would be like, well, you know, you can go and catch a nice tarpon if you like. And I started doing that. And then um, that worked out pretty good with work. So I could do that on a part-time basis. So when I first started working, I was guiding part-time and started working. And um, I don't know, kind of did that for about 15 years or so. And then uh, we went through that real bad um, recession and I was making money selling boats and brokering boats. And, um, anybody that's been in the boat industry for a long time realized there's some peaks and there's some pretty bad valleys. Well, during the valleys, the brokerage and the, and the boat sales really dried up, but the phone kept ringing for me to take people tarpon fishing and snook fishing. So, um, that started paying the bills. And as the economy got better, the business got better. And um, I was like, well, why fight the tide? If people are putting money in my hand to take them fishing, maybe I should just fish. And then about, I'm uh, going about 17 years now, I've been full time. And that's kind of the way it all fell together. And if you take a look at it, I mean, that offshore game is really expensive. It's expensive and, and, it's, and the numbers are small now. Right. You know, like, like when I was doing it, the Calcuttas were huge. The prizes were huge. There'd be 30, 40, 50 boats in a tournament. And then now, you know, if you look at the Bahama Billfish tournament or chain, if they even do it anymore, some years they don't even do it. And there'd be like 12 boats in the Billfish Championship. Is that because the fishing is so poor or because people don't want to do that anymore? I mean, is, is, is the passion for the tournament starting to Well, I think I think I think what it is, I think years ago there used to be what I would refer to as your million-dollar fisherman. Your million-dollar fisherman could afford, could afford a nice boat, call it a 45 hat or something like that, and he could afford to go to the Bahamas and fish a boat like that. I think those guys are gone, and the new guy has a $10 million boat. Or if you're at entry level, say you got a Viking, then you're only into it for 3 or $4 million, but it's costing you, you know, close to a million dollars a year to run it. So I think because of that... Um, yeah, they basically, there's no more middleman anymore. Either you're loaded or you're running around in a T-top tile boat. And when I mean loaded, I mean, you know, $10 million sport fish. Right. You know, it's very common now. And I think a lot of those owners and stuff really could care less about the fishing. Um, they weren't into it. They weren't living for it like the guys were in the 80s and the 90s. Right. That makes sense? Yeah, no, for sure. We... Um... We just did a podcast with Skip Smith, and we're going to fish with him. We're leaving for Capos tomorrow, and he ran the mother and the uh, and the mother and her hooker. The book. Did you read that book? I didn't read the book. Oh, it's. I, I should read it. it should. <laughs> <laughs> it's your your kind of book. Okay. I mean, it's really. I mean, I didn't leave the house for like three days. I was riveted. Really riveted, and I've done as as has Nikki some offshore stuff, but we get seasick, right? I mean, we are horrible. And we tried. We had a twin V, and we were trying to go offshore and catch a sailfish. And 
initially we'd buy a dozen goggle eye and then we'd go out there and get seasick and come home and we'd look at the watch and say, well, if we leave right now, we can go golfing in, in an hour and a half. <laughs> and we'd go out and drown one goggle eye and run home. And we'd release all the others at the dock. <laughs> at the dock. The, that's the safest goggle eye is the goggle eye in our live well. <laughs> yeah. We are not offshore guys. <laughs> yeah. We suck. So, but, um, you know, but we, you know I, I, I can see how, too, that with what you've done in your career, I see a great fisherman a great character with great uh, levity and your home, you fish near home, your home at night. That offshore stuff is very enduring. It's big, big money. You travel, you're elsewhere. And I can see as a fisherman myself, how we rent a house in the Keys for six weeks and we pull the boat in shallow water and it's really cool to go home every night, but not really have that big exposure offshore. But we are going to go to Cabo's tomorrow and give it one, one last shot. But, what you've done there in Fort Lauderdale is 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 really amazing, and I don't think many people realize how great the fishery is between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Tell us about your fishery. Yeah, um, you know, especially with tarpon, and I know you love tarpon. You know, that's your gig, but um, it's the only place that I know of that you can fish for tarpon in one form, fashion, or the other, and I mean get tarpon um, twelve months out of the year. All the time. Yeah, you may have to switch up how you do it in the size of the fish you're catching and where you're getting them, but we always got them. We have them all summer long. We have them all winter long. And the rest of the state is, um, you know, cold, and the tarpon flood into Broward and Dade County, so we have them there. Um, and that's because of the deep cuts, the bridges. The, the- yeah, the water's deeper, and then the Gulf Stream makes it where if the water temperatures ever do dip into the 70s, it only lasts for a day or so. And then the ocean water is, you know, 74, 75 degrees, and it warms it right back up. So we don't have any real long periods of cold water, so the fish will stick in there. And um, it's very good. It's getting more challenging as years go on. Um, I think it's always been a little challenging for a lot of people to fish, in, especially Broward County. Um but I think a lot like the way Kelly Slater turned into a great surfer. He surfed out of Sebastian Inlet, right. which had a lot of waves. But, you know, you really had to... Um, they weren't quality waves. Right. And you had to work hard to get every last bit out of your... Sure. Out of your beach. But now I have to get every last bit out of my fishery. So having that demanding pressure on you all the time, and not pressure from clients, pressure from your fishing environment to be able to stay on the fish and know where they are, know where you're going to be able to catch them. Um, I think it, it raises the bar. Guys that fish out of like Island Marauder or Key West um, or, of course, or of course some of these international places, I don't think they realize how great their fishery is. So they kind of don't have to, let's say... Um, they push, take it for granted? Take it for granted. They don't have to push it quite as hard. You know what I mean? So, so you're saying you have little nooks and crannies and little hot spots that if you're a good fisherman and you're a fishy guy, it's hard to just go into Tarpon River or, or Broward and just kind of be consistent on fish. There's little nuts, right? Yeah. So you're saying that you got you to gotta pick and choose. And I'm just saying that, that you know, it's not a normal fishery where you have charts and instructions right. on how you can, where you can go and how you can do it. And... We don't have like this um, huge amount of guides, you know, where it can be monkey see, monkey do. 
right. or or you know somebody's gonna teach share you, share information right share or teach you stuff or even be much of a mentor like Mark Croca. I was just gonna ask you about your mentor and I knew Croca had fished there a lot he and John Glorio right 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 and um the reason I mentioned Croca's name is because when I was really young he was fishing for Lauderdale and he was doing a lot of the style fishing that I'm doing and I would see him and not that he taught me much but it made me realize that I can do it I can do it right here and I can be great at it if I work hard at it. Because he was great at it. Absolutely. And, and he was very successful. Absolutely. Now you just had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of people take you as a very lighthearted person because you are really generous with your, with your hospitality as far as fun. And the and comedy. Your charisma and your... And your I mean, I mean, I, people forget that being a guide is an entertainment business. How how seriously do you take yourself as a fisherman? How seriously do I take myself? Yeah. Very I mean, I, I mean are, you, are you driven? Do you have sleepless nights? Yeah. Yeah, I ha I'm driven to have sleep, sleepless nights. Um, I mean, you fish a lot. When, when I get kicked in the balls, and if you're a fisherman, that constantly happens to you. You, get, you can take it two ways. You can fall down and hold your balls, right? <laughs> or you can get up and get ready for another one. And I firmly believe that if you don't get up and get ready for another one, one of these days you'll just stay down. So I constantly believe that, you know, you have to get up and um, brush yourself off, start over again. And when that happens to you, it's kind of like working out. The more you do that, the more consecutively you do that, the better you become. And um, that's kind of been my philosophy. Um, every time I think that I'm really good, something happens where it humbles me and I know that I'm not that good. And when I quit thinking that way, that's probably when I'll level off and won't progress like I used to. But most likely you're not going to allow that to happen. I don't know. I'm getting older. Shit changes but you you know, so far it hasn't. Right. You know, and um, you know it's interesting. I'm I'm going. I'm almost seventy now. You know, in a couple of years I will be. But I seriously, you know, tournaments aside, I take it very personal. And it like sometimes I wake up and I you know I'll be dragging my head around. I I feel I feel like insecure. I'm not a good person. You know, what's this bad karma I have? And Nikki and I go through these wars and. We take it very, very personal. And I imagine that you, too, assess how good we are by each and every day. Yeah, yeah. The only people that really know how it affects me... Um, are your wife and your dog. Exactly. Because I get home late at night. Those are the only two that see me when I'm at my lows or see me when I'm at my highs. You know what I mean? Then I go to sleep and I get ready for the next day and I don't have time to think about what happened yesterday because I got a new guy getting on the boat today and I'm going to make sure that if I got beat up yesterday, this guy wasn't going to get beat up today. But um, I don't know, that nighttime thing and getting home, um, not too many people get to see that side of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
doing what you do, what so our fishery and how we fish typically, you know, the the fish are swimming pretty regularly in May down in the Keys. So we get on the beach and we know where they're going to be or what they either come or they don't. You run around a little bit, but what you do, you have deeper water. Mm-hmm. They move around a little bit more. They're harder to find. What is your tactic going from day to day when you can't find them? How do you how do you put the pieces of the puzzle together? Yeah, good question. The um, what well, my old saying: Can you get a dozen? Right. Right. I love that. Yeah, it's that's pretty deep. You know, people laugh and you know they use it or whatever. But the very first thing in order to be successful in Broward County is you have to be able to get a dozen of the right baits. I use mullet a lot. I'm not afraid to tell people that. Good luck catching them. But when you have mullet in your well and you're and you're trolling mullet around and realize in our fishery, we, it's a lot less visual. You know, the water's dark. You can't see the fish so much. Um, your sonars and side scans and all that can only do so much. But a mullet will help you um, find the fish. And also when you're mullet fishing is you can keep your baits in the water while you're moving. So even if the fish aren't eating, um, if you have a mullet in the water and the mullet starts getting really nervous, like he's not getting nervous for nothing. Right. So you can kind of put that um, and get a little leverage from that. It's probably a cuda. Could be. <laughs> could be Jack. Could be a lot of things. But um, that helps you. You know, right. that's like having a whole nother set of eyes. It's like having another type of um, piece of equipment on your boat that, you know, instead of using your sonar, you're using your bait. And, and, it, and it really helps you a lot. And, you know, that old saying about getting a dozen, there's a lot to it. And right. that's part of it. And when you're fishing mullet, you're, you're covering ground. Exactly. You're not anchored. You're not, you're not set up in one spot. You're covering ground. Essentially, you're almost like, like you said, it, it's tannic water. Can't see the bites. Hard to see the fish. Ray Marine can only work or the depth finder can only work so well. You're kind of fishing the structure, fishing the bottom, fishing everything but the fish right realistically and and that's something that a lot of my clients have a hard time with because of fort lauderdale um you know you're not fishing the sides of the creeks and stuff right you know the docks and all that kind of thing you're fishing um holes and ledges and places where the current will split and you can't see that stuff through any type of you know tree or mangrove line or shadow so people constantly want to you know get a plug and try to cast under docks and stuff and i'll let them do it you know, knock yourself out. But in the meantime, I have the two mullet behind the boat doing you're, work for you're, us. You're, wa- you're watching hog leg back there. Sure, sure. It's all about the hog leg. So, okay. <laughs> What's a hog leg? Yeah, the old hog leg, you know. <laughs> hog leg is when you're fishing a mullet that's basically over 10 inches, between 10 and, say, 20 inches. You know, bait that's, you know, close to somewhere between, I don't know, a pound to two and a half pounds. Is that is that the golden mullet, a hog leg? Yeah. Well... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm saying, I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah, it is. you know, I'm, I'm just wondering it because is. as a bait guy, you know, we fish with mullet, you know, and I've always, you know, thought maybe a little bit of a smaller one might be a little bit more, you know, dinosaurs or, or elephants eat peanuts. Right. I've always thought that like the finger mullet is, a lot of times might work a little bit better and, I've, and, and the real big mullet. You know, but it, but you're the mullet man. You're the lunker dog. Well, the lunker, is, the lunker dog says that the that the hog leg is the way to go. But realize we realize where the vintage came from. I mean, um, unlike some of the other places where you snook fish, in Broward County, it was never about the numbers of snook. It was about how big your snook could be. 
So we grew up with the mindset of we're only looking for the biggest snook in the creek. And what would be a big snook? 40? That's monster. 40's monster. 40 pounds? No, 40 inch. inches. How, uh, so how heavy is that? 20 pounds? All right, the inch, the 40 inch thing, that's for West Coast people. Oh, it's, it is? Uh, in my opinion. So Nikki, you're a West Coast guy. Jeez. Uh, you're you're my hat sideways. Take off that US ski team patch. <laughs> I honestly you're think- You're no longer that worthy. <laughs> I honestly think that the people from Sebastian Inlet to say uh, Port Everglades, um, measuring the snook, it's kind of beneath me. I'm way more into like, we're talking about 40, 40 pounds. 40 pounds, right. yeah. 30, 30 pounds. You're a weight fish guy. Well, like I say, you know, it was always about getting the biggest snook in the creek. And we would call it basically a lunker snook, a fish over 20 pounds. So, but it's but big meaning weight, not length. Right, right. Because because the trout guys, they're all in inches. Yeah. Right, and then you know, and then you see these West Coast snook that you know are friggin' forty four inches, forty five inches long, but they weigh eighteen pounds. You know, and then a forty four inch snook in Fort Lauderdale, you know, is weighing thirty five pounds. So it's you know, that's that whole inch thing that that drives me crazy. <laughs> so okay. I got it. All right. <laughs> okay, WC. <laughs> and it irritates the piss out of the West Coasters, which, you know, is like not a bad thing. And you kind of like turning that screw too. Well, yeah. I mean, dude, I, I, look at, I look at everybody as if they were a fishing buddy of mine. And if you fish with me, then we have fun and I goof around and I'll pick right. on you a little bit. And if you don't like that, go fish with somebody else. Right. So, you know, I mean, that's just kind of the way we are. And I got to tell you, you know, you, you lose people that way. There's some people that can't handle that. But the people that do handle that and can handle that, they love you for it. They want to come back? Sure. Right. You know, they and then they give it right back to you. For sure. You know, they'll go out there and put in a gourd or whatever and catch 20 snook and be like, how many did you catch this month? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I get it. And it's fun. And it's good to go back and forth. That's why you're so loved. <laughs> Is there actually any animosity between the West Coast and the East Coast guides? A little. Is there? A little. Based on inches? <laughs> Based on inches, exactly. Uh, there, there's, there's a little animosity. And there's a there's a lot of animosity between the uh there's a lot more animosity between the guys that aren't digital and the guys that are. Right. I, I see that. Yeah. Guys that aren't digital really have a hard time with guys that are digital. And you know what I mean by digital. I mean that you do social media and you take pictures with your phone and you have Facebook and you have Instagram. Yeah, so that went YouTube. right over my head. Yeah. <laughs> so being digital um, irritates the piss out of people, especially the older people that aren't digital. And I get it. I get it. You know, but guys like Bouncer Smith that have been around forever, you know, they're not as digital. And they were used to the old TV and magazines and that kind of thing. The rabbit ears. Right. And then this this wave, this digital wave comes on. And they're sitting from the outside looking in. And they're like, how did this happen? And, you know, I get it. You know, it's not easy to swallow. And you took full advantage of that digital swing. I mean, talk about when YouTube came about, you were truly one of the first fishermen that really took full advantage of uploading content, uploading videos, and you got millions of views from that. Yeah, um, I was lucky. You know, I was lucky as far as that went because of uh, you guys both met Lamont. And um, Chip was really, you know, into filmmaking at the time. You know, there was no real digital video at the time. It was film. And um, 
if you look at the early videos, we're actually shooting that in Super 8. And um, we would convert to Super 8 um, so we could watch it on VHS. So we were doing that, and it was pretty hard. And then Lamont calls me one day, and he's like, dude, there's this website called YouTube. This is before Google bought YouTube. He says, we can upload our videos right on YouTube. And then they can host them there. And I'm listening and I'm trying to put it all together. I had no clue what he was talking about. So I'm like, are we filming today? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. So then he'd go home and he'd be like, dude, I uploaded it. So I would go on my computer and I would go to YouTube and I would try to you know, watch the video and nothing would happen because I had an old computer. The processor wasn't even good mm -hmm. enough to do video. And it would take like two days to upload a five minute video. Wow. Yeah, because we were on dial-up. There was no, there wouldn't even, there wasn't even high-speed internet at the time. And then you would just pray that um, your hard drive wouldn't crash during the upload, because it took everything your processor could do to upload video. And um, that's how early we were in. More important than the actual production was the way um, the YouTube search engines worked in the old days. Like the only way you found the Lunker Dog um, through YouTube in the early days is you had to type in tarpon fishing, snook fishing, fishing in Fort Lauderdale. And then if you type that in, you know, you would see the Lunker Dog. So not only were we starting to get a lot of views, they were the right people watching the content, which you can't say for digital media anymore. Right. You know, now it's just an algorithm mess. Whoever gets the most views are going to get pushed to the front. And it's a better business model for Google and these guys. You know, I get it. But we really were able to take advantage of the time and the timing of the digital media. Right. So, what, But from the beginning, what was your objective on these videos? Just to film? You, you kind of wanted to go the unconventional way of what was on TV, correct? Absolutely. The, um, the thing that always... Um, irritated the piss out of me and Lamont and then a lot of the guys that I fish with is these guys that were on TV and these guys that were writing in the magazines would come to us so they could catch the fish and then they could write about it and be the expert. They would be the expert. Don't say that this is where the real guys came in because this makes sense. This is all about being a real guy. Is that right? Yeah. So the real guys would actually take the oh, Sosans of the world and... They would go out and do their show or whatever, or do you know write an article, but they couldn't actually go into the New River and catch the tarpon. Right. You know they weren't the ones getting the thirty pound snooks, but then they would use the real guy, and it, yeah, I mean the old shows. I mean you saw it. Right. Do you remember Andy Thompson taking Mark Sosin fishing all the time? Andy was a superstar. Right. He would put that old man on all these fish, <clears throat> and he would make these shows, and the shows would come out, and then. Sosin was arrogant enough to basically talk down to Andy. And Lamont and I would be sitting there watching this show and be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that's happening. Right. You know? Really? Yes. No, absolutely. It's, it's pretty well known. Yeah. I mean, in, you know. Inside, in, from the inside world. Yeah. And I've always been in the inside world because of my dad and the boat building and all that. Well, you know what was really important is when I had uh, a fishing show for those seven years, I think you used to see it a long time ago. Yeah, I used to watch it. I was always trying. I'd go out of my way. I always paid the guys full price, and I always made the guide the celebrity. 
and I always wanted to be the neophyte on their boat, even though I could fish, whether it be with whomever. I knew how to fish, but I really wanted to let that guy shine. I want his information on the air. And I think that that was really important to basically be humble with what my role was as a host, but really to expose where the real knowledge was coming from. And I wanted to hear the nuances from the guide because if that information is transferred to a host and he tries to explain what the expertise is, he's going to miss the nuances of why you do whatever you do and the techniques and the tactics. Right. So if that guide is profiled as if we fish with you, you are the king and you are the Mac daddy and all that stuff. Actually, there's no medium, mm-hmm. you know, so the information is direct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there was a part of doing the YouTube videos that was so gratifying. And that part was when I would see Andy Thompson down in Biscayne Bay fishing and he looks over at me and I look over at him, never met before, didn't really know each other, but because of YouTube, Andy was like, Oh, that's Jeff. He's like me. A real guy. Yeah. And then, and yeah, I give him the thumbs up and give him a wave and never really had to say anything. And we were friends. Right. And we both respected one another and kind of, and then um, guys like yourself were starting to call me up to fish. And I, I'll, I'll never forget the day you called me. I'll never forget the day Bill Dance called me where I hang up the phone and I'm like, Andy Mill wants to fish with me, you know? And I followed, you know, the, the fishing that you did and your shows. And I was always like, to me, um, you were like my bill dance because I grew up in South Florida and I get two shits about catching bass, but I love catching tarpon. So I'm thinking this guy really wants to fish with me. And then we go fishing and then we have a great time. And then I'm like, well, why the hell not? Wouldn't he want to fish with me? Right. You know, but you know, it was, it was a big turnaround in my life because you always were on the outside looking in and then all of a sudden you're on the inside and people are looking at you. And you can really, you know, show everybody the fruits of all the work that you've been putting in. When did you realize that you were, you were one of the greats? Was there a, a, any, a, a place in time or a moment that you realized that, you know what, I, I'm really fucking good? Yeah, when I was freaking putting those 30-pound lunkers in everybody's faces day in and day out. <laughs> and I'm waiting for a little bit of, you know, response i want to see the other guys and then that wasn't happening and i'm like damn it's like i'm pretty damn good at this and then taking a guy like you fishing's easy you know i mean i mean you know how you can freaking work your rod you can freaking see what's going on behind the boat you understand you know what the water looks like when the fish starts to come up and that kind of thing but taking a guy that doesn't know anything like bill dance and being able to put multiple fish, you know, um, on his rod and coach him. And when you start coaching people, that's when you realize that you're an expert. Because some of the people that you swear are the biggest professionals in the world are now listening to you every little thing that you say. And if they do it exactly the way you say and they execute exactly the way that you want them to, they, be- they become successful. 
And when you see somebody else become successful, that's when you know that you're good. At least that's the way I look at it. Yeah. It's obvious. Yeah. And these, when you first started making these YouTube channels or videos, yeah. were you Jeff Maggio or were you Lunker Dog? And how did that name come about? Well, it was the Lunker Dog when we were doing the videos. From day one? From day one. How, and how did that come about? Who, who termed that or, or coined that? <laughs> well, you know, I had a bar on Fort Lauderdale Beach in the old days. And um, I mean the old days. I mean 1996 to like 2001. And um, I had this kid that worked for me, and he would check the IDs at the front of the, at the front of the bar, you know, at the entrance. And there was a little patio that was right in front of Shooters, and I would get done with my trip, and it'd be like ten, ten thirty at night. And back then, you'd kill the biggest snook that you caught and throw him in the back of the truck. There was no regulations and that kind of thing. And killing small snook wasn't what you did. You killed the big ones. We didn't know that those were the breeders at the time where it made it made a difference. So anyway, I'd have the big giant snook in the back of the truck. And Jeff, this big black kid that worked for me, would call them lunkers. And the tourists would be on the front porch of the bar. And I'd walk up and they'd go, oh, what kind of fish is that? What kind of fish is that? And Jeff would look over and he'd say, oh, those are lunkers, dog. Those are lunkers. So... When guys would come into the bar, we would start laughing and goofing around, and we'd say that, "Oh yeah, those are lunkers, dog." So then, you know, when when uh, when I started doing the, when I started doing more trips and the business got a little bit more serious, I had to name it something. So we called it Lunker Dog, and it was kind of a joke at the beginning, but it was easy for people to say. People remembered it. People liked saying it, so we stuck with it. And then when YouTube came out, I was the Lunker Dog. And it's funny, I'll introduce myself to people. Hey, how you doing? I'm Jeff. They go, I know you. And I'll go like this, the Lunker Dog. And they're like, oh, yeah. You know? So, and it also had to do with, there was a time um, in my business where I said, do I want to spend time and energy on advertising or do I want to spend time and energy on branding? And I was very familiar with marketing. And I said, well, you know, advertising runs out as soon as your cash runs out. Branding might take a little bit longer, but once you've developed a brand and you've instilled it upon somebody, you're, you're, you, they'll remember you forever. So I took the long-term approach and I went out and I started branding myself as opposed to spending money on advertising to get trips. And growing it organically. Correct. And how did you brand that initially? Well, it was mostly through digital media. But it, it, was, a, it was a character it was yeah it's a character it's a character right it's a character and that was the other thing too um you know you asked me how serious i take myself when we when we started doing our youtube productions the one thing that we did not want to do was to let other people think that we took ourselves seriously we did not want to be the guy that was telling you how to do things or why to do things or i'm an expert so you should do this what we wanted to do is we wanted to laugh and we wanted to cut up and we wanted to say things that you and Nikki would say with your buddies when you're out fishing. And then we wanted to act like that because that's the way people acted when they're actually fishing. They did not act like they were on friggin' some TV show. Right. It was authentic. Right. And we were able to do that for free. You know, it didn't cost us, you know, 10,000 bucks to make 10 minutes. So we could do whatever we want. We could upload whatever we want. We could act however we wanted. And um, 
we couldn't spend that kind of time getting good at fishing if we weren't laughing and goofing around and having a good time. Right. So we thought that that was the it best way. went hand way. in hand. Yeah, we just thought that that was the best way. And it was different at the time. Now YouTube and digital media, people do it all the time. You know, everybody's a character now. But when we did it, there was no characters. You know what I mean? Right. That's why it was so popular. It was fresh and new and... And it was something that people hadn't seen before. Right. And then we would laugh about it. And then next thing you know, there'd be a 50-pound fish next to the boat. You know? And like, and then people would look like, dude, these guys are just cutting up. And that's the that's third one he just caught. <laughs> you know? They're real. Right. So, you know, we didn't have to scream into the top of our lungs that we were great or anything. All we had to do was have fun and catch fish and just keep uploading. Let the stories yeah, tell the it, story. And let it happen. And then uh, people that were into the sport gravitated towards the longer dog. And um, then they meet me and they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of get it. You know, this kid really doesn't give a shit. Has Jeff Maggio kind of gone away in the fishing world? Is Lunker Dog more prevalent in your life now than, than Jeff? No, and that's because of my clients. My clients find me as the Lunker Dog and then they fish with me and then they know me as Jeff. No yeah. way. Yeah. I only know you as Lunker. <laughs> I'm not ever calling you Jeff again. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> but it's true it's true that I, you, you can you can hook them by being a lunker dog but then you know when you fish with somebody you know over and over again they get to know you yeah you know, and then they, they know you know they, they see through you know what originally hooked them right you know what I mean? what's the most outrageous trip you've had if you've got one that stands out most outrageous I don't know, probably when I did the Florida Sportsman Show with George Gods. Wind was blowing out of the northwest about 30 miles an hour, and it cooled down to about 45 the day before you're supposed to do the shoot. And George called me up, and he said, you know, um, I guess we'll reschedule. And I said, well, we can reschedule. I said, but, you know, sometimes the fish really like this. I said, every once in a while, it'll crush you. I said, but on the other hand, it could be really good. And... um I don't know, we shot that show in about three and a half hours. We hooked about 18 fish. And um, I was a nervous wreck before the whole thing because, you know, I told the people to come on down and I knew, I knew damn well it could go either way. And because of that, um, I don't know, when I start catching fish, even today, I get excited. I have a great time doing it. And um, I was able to do that with George and, that, and you know the camera people and all that. And the fish cooperated and everything was perfect. And then, um, you know, later on watching the shows, you know, you kind of just appreciated the whole experience because, you know, like I said, there's times when you get kicked in the ball and there's time when you're King Kong out there. And we were King Kong that day. Right. So, and then I've never seen a, a, a fishing show with Tarpon that was ever quite like that. I mean, literally, where every spot we went to, you just put a bait in the water and we were had a fish. Hmm. There's nothing like a tarpon bite uh, with a mullet. No. I love that. I really, really love that. And a lot of people think that we're just fly guys. But how much fun have we had fishing with, with oh, mullet over So there? much fun. I, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, Jose Wahabi. I don't know if you remember the show he did where he couldn't get the bait. I think he was probably west of Key West, and he grabbed the cooler. I think he might have been even out of the country. I think he was in Panama. He was with He's Carter out, Andrews, I yeah, think. out of the country. So he gets out of the boat. He couldn't get shallow enough with his boat. So he gets the cooler out of his boat, wades up into the shallow oh, area. Yeah, I do remember that show. Throws the cast net, fills up the cooler, wades it out to the boat, and they go crush him that day. 
Nikki and I are in the lower keys probably about four or five years ago. And it's nasty. Big black clouds, it's blowing 20, a little bit of rain. And we're at uh, Baby's Coffee, just south of um, the Sugarloaf Hotel there, getting a coffee. And driving over there, I look over to the west side, and there's a little basin. And I look over there, and I see this big half acre of mullet, big mullet mud. And I look at the sky, and I look at Nikki, and I know that there's no way we're going to be able to fly fish on that day. And I said, Nikki, today we are dedicating this day to Jose. He said, what do you mean? I said, Nikki, see that mullet mud over there? We're going to grab the cooler out of the Hell's Bay. We're going to walk out there. We're going to fill it with mullet, and we're going to go crush them. He said, really? So we grab the cooler, and we walk you know, through the mangroves and get over there, and the mud's sucking the sandals off of our feet, and, <laughs> and, and, and the coral. And I'm not, I throw great bananas with my cast oh net. My <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're walking out there, and a sense of the, the, the coral's killing my feet. And we get out there, I got the cast net in my mouth, and I'm getting ready to throw it, and I'm right there. And just before I let go, Nikki goes, don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> so I fling this banana out there, and we get a bunch of mullet, and we throw them in the cooler. And we, we go back and you know put it in the put it in the boat, and go down at about another four miles and launch the boat. And we go out and we hook like seven, seven or eight tarpon that day. But that was one of the greatest days of of fishing I've ever had because we're not great you know, catchers of mullet, but we love mullet fishing. And because of Jose's show and showing what he had done on his show, we saved that day and it was dedicated to Jose. And seriously, to this day, I'll, you know, it was one of the, the best days of my life. Yeah. Mullet fishing is phenomenal just because, you know, the, yeah, it's so visual. You know, you see the take, you see the mullet getting nervous before the take a lot of times. Sometimes the fish are in a weird mood where they hit the mullet eight times before they actually suck it down. And, um, caught a lot of tarp in other ways, but, um, it's exciting. You know, it's kind of like marlin fishing for the big blue marlin, but you don't have to wait friggin' three days for that son of a bitch to come up in your spread. <laughs> right. You know, it happens every few hours, you know, on a slow day <laughs> instead of every few days. So it's, it's fun. And then, um. Yeah, the clients, once they see it, they're hooked. Right. Like totally hooked. Yeah, yeah. No. Do you ever butterfly your mullet and throw them on the bottom? Yeah. Yeah. I actually tried that um, a little bit um, the night before last. There was a ton of fish, and we were only getting a few strikes with the live bait, and we do that. And sometimes it works pretty well. I tell you, it's funny, the um, the dead bait thing. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Last year... Um, there was just a ton of tarpon in this one spot they were fishing. It was kind of deep. And um, we were getting some, you know, with the live mullet. But there was just so many fish that I was like, let me let me cut some mullets in half and throw them on the bottom. And we couldn't keep a bait in the water. We were just crushing them. I think we got like seven fish in, you know, like three hours. And um, Were you chunking the bottom? Yeah, well, we, we'd take a few mullet and chum them up, you know, and then... Throw out, an, you know, throw out pe- one with a hook on it. Throw out one with a hook on it. And, you know, pretty much, you know, they just were... They loved it, and we were crushing them. So, um, you know, being the guide, I'm like thinking, okay, well, I got that in my back pocket. I can do that, you know, anytime these fish kind of clam up on me. The very next day, I banked on that, and uh, I didn't get a friggin' strike. Same fish, same spot. One day, they would, eat, they couldn't wait to eat the dead bait, and the very next day, I couldn't get a shot on it. But I'll tell you something. A client would, A client, whether he knows it or not, Rather catch one tarpon on a live bait and watch him eat it and do all that than catch four tarpon on a dead bait. Yeah. 
Now, they don't understand that until after it happens, but you know that after doing it so many thousands of times that it's worth you know them to see that. Right. And if they do see that, they're hooked. You know what's amazing is like um, the fall mullet run. I was, I, could, I was just about to say that. Because talking about mullet, I need a little clarification on definition here. What is happy bait? Happy bait. <laughs> <laughs> happy bait. Well, that's a good question because it's not just about the mullet, even though that you know the, the mullet is the most apparent thing that happens during happy bait. Happy bait itself is when all the dorks that can't normally catch bait can catch bait. Everybody's happy. It's happy bait. <laughs> Guys that don't normally go out and get the bait, you know, they're all out there. They got their cast nets. They're filling their nets when they're throwing their mm. bananas and amoebas, <laughs> you know, and everybody's happy and you see everybody and they're fishing together and spots aren't a big deal and it's happy bait. But happy bait, of course, we get the mullet to come down, you know, and that's what I'm into. But at the same time, the mullet are coming down, the ballyhoos are coming down offshore and the goggle eyes are schooling up in their big numbers. And all this stuff usually happens in September and October. And um, that's just the bait migrations that normally move, you know, as the water's cooling down. They come right down the Straits of Florida, and um, that's happy bait. But but happy bait is not, it's not a time, it's not a place. It's happy bait is when you call happy bait, correct? It's true. You got to call it. I got to call it. I don't call happy bait until I see everybody out there. You guys have participated in happy bait. Right? <laughs> We've seen you out there. Right? Yes. And, uh, and, and when, when happy bait is going on, it's very apparent. I mean, you guys showed up, um, I don't know, a year or two after we went fishing and did the first mullet run stuff. And the inlet was just slap full of bait. And the tarpon were jumping all over the place. Not necessarily the best bite in the world. Right. But how many boats were out there that night? I, I have never seen... Th- the inside so filled with tarpon in the air and mullet spraying wall to wall i had a i had a tarpon or we i should say because we were together a tarpon came up right next to the boat and filled our boat with 45 50 happy baits sprayed the mullet right in there <laughs> but i mean that that particular night that i saw you guys i mean there were literally 20 dudes in the inlet right and and you saw them yeah they were legitimately happy that was like <laughs> yeah. the time of their life this is the time to be out there and they were doing it on the beach when we were in the inlet, you know? Yeah. The other thing about happy bait is there was always so much bait, and it would go on for so many miles, you know, up and down the sure. beach, is everybody had their own little area to fish. You know, there was no crowding. They all spread out. Everybody spread yeah. out. And then if you, did, if you were on a bunch of fish and you saw a guy, you know, you waved him over. You weren't worried about, you know, right. your spot or, or a corner or, or whatever. That's happy bait. Right. What is your key to being successful during the mullet run when there are so many fish in the water? I know what I do, mm-hmm. which I think works pretty well, which is might be similar to you. But what is your key to catching fish during the mullet run with a mullet? Well, I think that um, there's, there's a couple of little things that you can do consistently that will increase your bites. You know, like not fishing your bait right in the middle of all the bait, trying to get it right on the outskirts of the bait. Because if you watch the fish, they kind of parallel the schools of bait, and then they go in and feed. Mm-hmm. And um, if you expect them to find your bait right in the middle of everything, not that they can't do it, not that it doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen every day. If you're able to keep your bait right on the side of the big schools, and you can tell which way the tarpon um, and the snook are pushing them, 
because they will they will push the bait. Sometimes they'll push it towards the shore, and then you see the bait really concentrate, and then the fish all come in for the kill, and then they eat all at once. And if you can if you can anticipate that and understand that that's happening, and you can put your bait in the right spot, then that helps you. Then there's other days when um, no matter what you do, you can't pull a strike out of there, and that can happen to anybody with as much experience as ever. And then there's other days where you can throw your bait right in the middle of everything, and for whatever reason, those tarpon find it, need it, and um, and you're just pulling strikes out. Also, I don't, I'm not afraid to leave the fish during happy bait. For instance, if we're fishing a school um, and it's out in the middle of the inlet, and we're in 40 feet of water, and um, we're just not getting the strikes, we're seeing the fish, and we're not getting the strikes, I'll leave them, and I'll go down the beach a quarter mile, find new bait, find new bait, find a different different pot of fish. And in my opinion, um, tarpon have a lot of different moods, I call it. And one batch of tarpon may be in a totally different mood than a batch of tarpon that's just 100 yards away. Hmm. So I, I got no problem picking up that time of year and leaving fish to find fish, even though people say, oh, you're not supposed to leave fish to find fish. Fortunately, during happy bait, you never really leave them. You just change. Yeah, you know you're going to find another school. Right, right, right. I've always tr like troll slow trolled or or drifted on the outside of a school. Like keep that one one or two bait, maybe twenty thirty yards away on the outer edge mm -hmm. and troll the outer edge is like what you were talking about. But have you ever slapped a mullet on the floor of your boat and like stun it? And you know how those tarpon get in there, start sliding on their sides, f flip that stunned mullet out in front of that sliding fish. Well, what, that's that, what we used to cut the tail. Didn't we used it? to cut the tail too, so they couldn't swim very right. fast. So when they'd come through, our bait was the slowest one, and that would be the left dog standing. You know, did it work? Sometimes it does. Yeah, not very consistently. Well, it's a, yeah, kind of like a lot of the theories in that yeah, happy right. bait run. Right. I mean, the key to happy bait is is you go and you try anything that you have to try if you're not getting the strikes. How about it, a dead bait on the bottom during that? Dead bait that on run? the bottom. Um, I've had, I've had very good luck doing that and catching big snook, not so much with the tarpon, but the big snooks, um, are down there and they're right on the sand in the bottom and they're fat and happy. And to get them to use any energy to come up and grab a bait that you're the trolling or that's swimming or whatever, eh, not so much. I've actually seen the big snooks sitting in the sand underneath the bait and, um, I've had jacks come in and smash your bait up. And then the bait fall on the bottom, and then you catch a snook. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But at the big snooks, um, a lot of days they respond really well to a dead bait right on the bottom of all that bait, and they'll just swim over and suck it down. I'm guessing the best time to fish might be right before and right after happy bait. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like in the Keys, the worm hatch, the Palola worm hatch, mm -hmm. sometimes there's too many worms when the hatch goes off, and the fish will never find your fly. Yeah, there's thousands and thousands of worms. So right before the hatch, there's fish out there on the worm bars looking for worms, and mm -hmm. you can smack them that way. Yeah, I think that I think that I think that's a really good theory, especially at the beginning of the of the bait migration. I think there's fish that are waiting for those mullet to come down, or eager for them to come down. So you'll get a lot of strikes and a lot of aggressive fish, you know, before it actually gets there. Right. Not so much at the end of the happy bait, because at the end of happy bait, the water's cooling off pretty quickly. And at that point, you know, things are up and moving, you know, so it's not quite as... They're not staging. Yeah. Probably fat and happy. 
they're fat and happy and they're getting out of Dodge. There's a time yeah. where they say, okay, we're out of here. And then everything, you know, the Snooks, the Tarp and everything starts really, you know, taking off and, you know, to, to be able to uh, get them to slow down and eat. Not so much, but at the beginning, very much true. I think I've caught, you know, a lot more um, or get a lot more bites, you know, at the beginning of September before the real bait migration actually gets there, you know, but yeah. How often do you learn new stuff? A lot more often than people would think. And, and what's the last thing that came to your attention that's new and different and that works? Well, there's things that I thought worked that I don't believe in so much anymore. And that happens to me more often than I find something new. Like, for instance, I was, a, I was a, for years, I really tried to keep my leader size very small. You know, would go all the way down to 30 and 40 pound test, even though the fish were 80, 90, 100 pounds. And then... And, but they were chewing through that pretty good because the bait is, swall is swallowed. Correct. And for me, it's easy for me to swallow, but for my clients, not so much. Right. You know what I mean? So what I find myself doing is, okay, well, I'll start putting on 60 and 80. I'm like, I just won't get as many bites. Not really. You know, every once in a while, okay, but the majority of the time I'm getting the same amount of bites using 60 and 80 pound leader. Is that when I was scaling it way down, I think I was way overthinking things. Right. And I think that's this, if anything that I've learned new. That's it. Is that it. Quit thinking. You know, it's interesting because you will not get that with a fly. You know, with clear water tarpon migration in the Keys, they see way too well. The flies above them, mm -hmm. you know, they start swimming, especially if you've got some sort of a especially with the worm fly and the new worm techniques where you're trying to cross them a little bit, they're going to see that heavier, you know, shock. But with the bait, with the mullet that's swimming, they know it's an animal that they want to eat. And I, and I, I can't imagine, especially with some of the tannic water that you have on the inside, that the 80 versus 40 pound shock is going to make any difference. That and I think the bigger leader um, impedes the bait just a little bit, makes it kind of slows it down, slows it down, makes it where, you know, maybe they wouldn't eat a regular bait going by, but because this thing's huffing along, dragging 80 pound right. with it, right? you know, that it might trigger them. I mean, it's, you know, you have no clue what those fish are actually thinking, but that's what I'm thinking, you know, and maybe that's why it's working. What's closer to your heart? A 35-pound snook or a 120-pound tarpon? 35-pound snook. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. 35-pound snook because fishing for 30- and 40-pound snooks, I would do that by myself any time that I had a day off. You know what I mean? I mean, I would just sit there and do it, knowing that if I didn't catch one, I can go home and be perfectly happy with that. You know what I mean? Um uh, not so much with tarpon. With tarpon, I know those fish are there, and if I don't catch one, it irritates the piss out of me, and I'm not really enjoying it. I enjoy the piss out of it when, um, you know, everything comes together and it's all working and I get all happy. But snook fishing to me is a lot different, and it has a lot more to do with me personally. Um, In what way? Something spiritual about big snook fishing. God, everyone says that. Steve, Steve, Steve Huff, Huff said that. yeah, his favorite fish now is a snook. Well, I think, I think always snook, was big snook on fly. Big snook. 
Yeah. Big Snook. And, you know, um, when we were kids, I mean, we would sit there with a case of beer, amongst other things, and we would sit there all night long knowing that sooner or later these Big Snook are going to feed. And we would wait, and we would wait, and we would goof around, and we would talk, and days would go by sometimes, and you wouldn't get a strike, and you were perfectly okay with that. You would get up the next day and stay up, you know, and do whatever you had to do until you got that big fish. And then when you got that big snook and you came home, I don't know, it was like eating a great pasta meal or something. You're like, you feel like it's like everything is great. Yeah, you're high. You're on a high. You're on a high. Sounds like y'all cunning to me. Yeah. And then also, too, as you know, that um, other guys aren't going to do what you just did in order to do that. That's a special fish. Yeah, it's a special fish. A lot of people catch 120-pound tarpon, but not very many people catch a 35-pound snook. I can guide people to catch 100-pound tarpon. Right. I can't necessarily guide people to catch 30-pound snook. There's There's a certain clientele that will do it with you. You know, um, usually after you fish with them for a long time, you know, and they have the faith in you that, you know, you're out there and every minute spent is a good minute. Um, but, you know, that, that that's the difference between snook and tarpon, in my opinion. How many of those big fish will you catch in a year? 30-pound snooks? Yeah. Now that I'm that I'm a full-time guide and I'm doing two. full-time tarpon guide? <laughs> yeah. Not so many. I get them by accident. And I don't really fish for them the way I used to. I don't show people how to catch them the way I used to. Um, you want to keep that for yourself? I just don't think that I don't think that the snook are in a position for that to be recreational for everybody at this point. Do you feel like your client doesn't deserve that special fish in any way? I think if he's just as happy catching a 12-pound Jack Gravel, then he should be catching a 12-pound Jack Gravel. I think that big, fat mother snook that's sitting over there should be left alone. Now, if that guy catches 100 of those big Jack Gravels and then caught 50, 100-pound tarpon with me over the course of eight or nine years, and Jim Hayes, um, who's been my one of my favorite clients and probably one of the most consistent clients, he's getting up there in age. And um, a couple of years ago, he said, Jeff, he goes, I really want to catch one of those giant snook that you do. And uh, I said, okay, Jim. I said, we'll do it. I said, but you do realize this isn't like tarpon fishing. You're not going to come home that night and scroll through all your pictures. So uh, we went a couple nights and we caught some big fish, you know, 17, 18 pounders. And then he got like a solid 40 pound snook. Mm. And I don't push mounts on my clients ever. I learned and saw a long time ago that that's a short road. And if a guy really wants to mount a fish, of course, you know, I'll hook him up the best I can. Jim caught this fish, and um, it was probably right about 40 pounds. Big, big snook. And I looked at Jim, and I said, dude, if you ever wanted to mount a fish, I go, that's the fish you should mount. And he did. And um, this guy's caught hundreds of tarpon with me. But the fish that he mounted and put on his wall was that giant snook. And he thanks me every time he sees me, you know, that he did so. Because people go there, and they look at that snook, and they just are in awe you know, of this big fish. And um, he was at the right time in his angling experience to catch a fish like that. You know what I mean? And what is that right time? There's a time when you fish enough in the salt water where you can really appreciate a trophy 
You know what I mean? It's one thing for a guy to put you on a trophy and you catch a trophy and you show that picture and everything. And then there's a time when he'll actually appreciate what he actually caught and actually understand what he actually caught. And getting a guy on a giant snook before he understands that, it's almost like you squander um, you squander what it's really like. It's and almost like you wasted that fish on somebody who didn't appreciate it. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right word, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. It's, it it that, wasn't fair to the fish. It wasn't fair to the fish, and it's not fair to some of the other clients. Like, one of the things that always drives me crazy about taking people fishing every day is you'll get some New Yorker or whatever in, and the dog track was closed that day, so he ended up booking with you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you took him jack fishing. Well, I'll take, or he'll go out and he'll catch, you know, five tarpon. And then, you know, he'll get off the boat and just, you know, like, oh, that's what that guy does. Right. And not even appreciate the how, five tarpon. How special that was. Yeah. Right. And then you get this other kid from Colorado that's been fishing since he could walk. And he's willing to spend 10 hours on the boat with you. And the fish clam up and he gets diddly. And then you go home and you go, how the frig does that work? It's not fair. Right. It's just not fair. It's just, I, right? I was watching a, a meat eater television show with Steve Ranella, and Stephen was taking his buddy Giannis Patelis and his dad moose hunting right. up in Alaska. And his dad was getting elderly. He was probably 75 years old. And it was kind of like his big last moose hunt hurrah. They go to, you know, they go up to Alaska. And I think the first morning or the second morning, Giannis's dad shoot, kills a monster moose. <clears throat> they call Steve over. Steve comes over and he's looking at Giannis's dad and he goes, dude, you don't deserve that. <laughs> you know, you didn't, you didn't withstand the thunderstorms and the rain and the cold and the, the sleepless nights in the tent and the uncomfortable situation. Yeah, he, he killed you, the moose 50 yards from the tent. You didn't like deserve you, that. You didn't experience enough pain. Right. And it was, it was great because at the same it's time, true. it's very true. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because we talk about, you know, we're, we're big fans of bow hunting for elk and, and we kind of do it a, a very hard way, backpacking in with our sleeping bags and, you know, freeze-dried food and we're being there hungry and, you know, walking 15 miles at 11,000 feet for a week and then we kill one it takes us four days to get home. And you get back to Boca and you see somebody and he shows you this 400 inch elk he killed on a private ranch at Ted Turner's place, at, you know, somewhere. And it's like, it's really hard not to be bitter. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, you don't, no, that's not an elk. But you can't say that. No, you can't. And, right, we, and, we, do, and we don't, but you know, but I, I get where you're coming from because we are fishermen and, and I'm just relating that to the hunting world as well. Right. Yeah. But it's, Steve Rennell said that so perfectly. Yeah, he goes, you didn't deserve that. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, and he meant that from the bottom of his heart. Yeah, you know, and and you know, and, and the poor guy that he said it to probably yeah, he, he didn't get it when he said that either. But the thing is, the old guy had probably experienced fifty years of pain, so yes, he did deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is like? What is that like? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the things that turned me off of the bill fishing, um, because quite frankly, if you got enough dough, and you're willing to spend it. You can buy the fish. You crush them in the tournaments and stuff. You know what I mean? Get the right crew. Get the right crew. You get right a boat, boat that's faster than everybody else's, and you're willing to spend the money, and you spend the money to get your glory. And I watched that happen, and it became very consistent, especially in the sailfish circuits. You know, and and I saw the the 
the really good fishermen. Um, best of the best. Ray Rocher is a good example. He has to jump off his charter style boat and captain somebody else's boat that can go 40 knots because maybe they want to run up to Stewart today and go bang out 20 fish. So Ray does that. Ray could never do that on his custom single engine right. charter boat. I could never do that on my little Bertram or whatever I had. And then you watch that and it, I wouldn't say bitter, but close. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you just shake your head like that's not what it's all about. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, the world of fishing. You, there's so many different perspectives and emotionals, emotions that play out. And that's why, you know, I, I, I love that, that term, you know, stay in my own lane. You know, just keep my eyes on my own paper because it's hard not to be a little bit judgmental in a lot of ways. Eh, you're out on the water all the time. It's okay to be judgmental. Nobody you, you deserved it. Yeah. You've, you've experienced the pain. And you don't have to put up with anybody anyway. You're going to be out there fishing all day anyway. I'm, I'm out, I've got to put up with Nikki. That's probably worse. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like we're going Fuck to... Fuck the... off. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd rather be a, I'm a guide for hire I get rid of Nikki I yeah. tell you if, I, if you want to see no fish have zero fun hire Andy Mill Charters <laughs> that's what we call our boat <laughs> Captain Zero Captain Zero <laughs> I tell you I tell you what, I tell you what excites me about you two is you guys do stuff together and uh, my dad's gotten to an age where he just can't he just can't anymore and I did stuff with him until then and uh, yeah I look at you guys and I'm just it warms my heart. It just makes me like, you know, that's what that's what happens. That's the way the world's supposed to go. You know what I mean? Right. And um, then I see the guys that fish that don't have that. And I'm not saying it's soulless or anything, but it's different. Hmm. You know what I mean? Having yeah. their family bond. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're I mean, the people that know our friends know us know how lucky we are to have each other because we're our, we're best friends. Mm-hmm. We all caught together. We fish every you know every second that we can together and. And the ribbing is nonstop, obviously, and that's why we like fishing with you, because there's a lot of ribbing. Well, it's we're more friends than parent son. Yeah, you know way too much, so too much that a son should know about a father. But that's what happens when you spend that sure. much time together out in the middle of nowhere trying to yeah. accomplish the same thing. Yeah, but, you're a sick man, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Steve, ask- Steve Huff said that. You know, he was talking about his clients. There are more things said on a skiff than there are said in a conventional. No, that okay. uh, that was flip. Yeah, that was flip. That was flip. <laughs> you guys, they're on a trip. Ah, uh, no, it wasn't this famous dude. It was that famous dude. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. This podcast has been around. <laughs> yeah, but um, the um, do you ever get mad? Oh, Are you mad right now in your life? No, for any reason? Not re- well. Me, I'm pissed about the damn sewage issue we're having in Fort Lauderdale. Like livid, you know. And that's just. Um, when you fish every day and you're on the water all the time, you see things different than the average Joe that's walking around. And you look at the average Joe that's walking around and you look, and you get pissed because they can't see what you see. And we've had these sewage spills in Fort Lauderdale and it's killed millions of fish and contaminated the waterways that I grew up on. And it's kind of like an ongoing thing. And I haven't been mad and really upset in a long time. In the last few weeks... I'm sitting there trying to fall asleep and my blood has been boiling. And to think that there's kids that are growing up right now that aren't going to have even close to the 
opportunity to catch fish and to enjoy the water and experience the things that people experience on the water because of lack of water quality, it's got my blood boiling. And I haven't been pissed in years, Andy. I mean, really deep down upset. But but you have a voice. Tell us about what you're doing with your voice in fighting this. The only thing... Well, well, first tell tell the tell the audience what's actually happening in Broward. Okay. Very similar to a lot of municipalities all through the state, our infrastructure, and we're talking about our sewage infrastructure, is failing. It was put in 1970s, and it's the same infrastructure, um, and it hasn't been updated, and the government has taken money from the taxpayers, from the developers, from everybody that's ever wanted to do anything in Broward County, you have to pay. If you're a developer and you want to build a skyscraper, you pay what they call an impact fee. It's a lot of dough. When you have water and sewer, you pay that every single month. It says right on your bill, it's for water and sewer. And they've taken that money and basically stole it and have done other things with it and have neglected the infrastructure. And they knew this shit was happening. And they made a conscious decision not to do what they needed to do to keep the infrastructure strong. The upgrades. and Right, upgrades and maintenance. Um, and have taken that money and done a whole bunch of other things with it. And um, just recently we had these major sewage spills in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> I'm talking about hundreds of millions of gallons of sewage put right into the New River where I grew up fishing, where I learned 90% of what I know. And you have videos of this. Yeah, we have videos of it. It's public knowledge. It's all over the news. I mean, you know, Broward County has admitted to it and knows about it and has acknowledged it. Doesn't make it any better. But you sit back and you think, you like, you just feel like you've been scammed and you feel like, you did what you, your part to make sure stuff like this doesn't happen. And then other people didn't do what they were supposed to do. And because of that, you know, the, 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 um, it just kills you. It eats you up from the inside out. So these, uh, these sewage spills are nothing new. It's just that they got so dramatically huge in a short amount of time that now people that aren't on the water every day, can understand or at least see the devastation. I've been crying about this shit forever. And what would happen normally is 20, 30,000 gallons of sewage gets spilled into a canal. They fix it in two days and nobody really knows what's going on. But it happens 20, 30 times a year in Broward County. Dade County, same exact issue. <coughs> Sarasota, they're having the problem. Tampa, they're having the problem. <coughs> There's septic problems in other parts of the state. But these failing infrastructures are causing crazy damage in the ecosystem, in our waterways, in the ICW, the bait migrations. All this stuff is dwindling. There's a few different reasons for it. Sewage is a big part of it. But sewage is something that we can get in front of as a state. We know this shit's happening. The governments already know this DeSantis dude that's supposed to save the friggin' world. He knows that this is going to happen to more cities. And it's going to happen in Fort Lauderdale again. It's going to happen in Miami. It's going to happen right here in Boca Raton. 
and if Florida can't get ahead of this and be more proactive, we should be the experts. We should be cutting edge technology. We should have the cleanest waters. It is the biggest priority for our state, or at least it should be the biggest priority for our state. It's the biggest priority for the people that move to the state. When people move here, they want to be on boats. They want to be at the beach. They want to surf. They want to paddleboard. They want to kayak. They don't come here to friggin', you know, uh, people go to New York City to make a lot of money. You know, you can go work at Goldman Sachs. You can, there's a million jobs you can get and make a lot of money. That's what you go to New York City for. When you come to Florida, you come here because of the water. And we're going to squander this. We're not going to get out ahead of it. And these people are supposed to be leaders. I'm 51 years old. I've seen Democrats. I've seen Republicans. I've seen them all. And every year, the water quality gets worse. Every year, the fist populations go down. And then what are we going to hear this year being an election year? We're going to hear about people. They're going to talk about environment. They're going to talk about saving the water. This Green New Deal bullshit. Dude, take care of our sewage. Take care of our own shit. Is that like... That's not rocket science. We should expect that. And we can't. And it just infuriates me. I didn't need to get on a roll like that, but geez, man. But tell us, tell us also too about the protests that you're, and you're organizing. holding them accountable. Well, or trying to at least. Yeah, I mean, because because it's become public knowledge and, and people can actually see what's going on. I thought it'd be a good idea to rally the people and actually have a demonstration where we're not holding um, the mayor and the commissioners. Um, well, we're not trying to vilify them and we're not trying to point our fingers at them and say, you son of a bitches. All we want them to do is take this as a priority. We want it to be the number one priority. Take all the other crap that's on the agenda and throw it out the window and make sewage a priority. We've paid for it. It should be a priority. What at the, what the heck else in this state is a higher priority than that? And then we want to, to be able to hold them accountable because sure they'll tell you oh yeah it's a priority it's a priority it's a priority three months will go by everybody else will go back to work yeah the fisherman can still still see the problem because he's on the water every single day but the guy that's going to work every single day you know in the office job or wherever you know going to school you're a teacher whatever the hell you don't know that the fish are still dying that the wildlife is being depleted so this demonstration is to hold them accountable and make it our number one priority and maybe just maybe with a little bit of luck the rest of the state will see it because it's not just a fort lauderdale problem it's happening all over and it's not just because it's giant development going on people want to point their fingers at the developers i mean i don't i'm not super happy that fort lauderdale is starting to look like a city but it is and we can't fight that but when you go to build a house in fort lauderdale you have to have the right plans. They make you put in the right foundation. They make you do all this crap in order to build a house. Well, you guys have a city to deal with, and you guys should be held to a higher standard than us. And they're not. And they steal the money, and they're never held accountable. So maybe after this protest, it'll open up some people's eyes, and maybe things will change. Am I counting on it? No. What else am I going to do? If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down screaming and kicking and fighting. How does this um, affect you as a fisherman in the in the future of, of your life as a fisherman? 
from a business standpoint? No, just that and as a personal, you know, emotionally. I mean, mean, every day you see this and you know in the back of your mind, in a real world, this is going to be a non-ending issue. Right. Emotionally, it's a tug of war because this is what goes through your mind. You say, well, you know, it's getting harder and this isn't right. So I'm going to pick up and I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to Punta Gorda. So then what? I'm going to watch it happen in Punta Gorda? Right. Happen all over again? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a tug of war in your mind. Like, what's the right thing to do? You know, where do I go from here? From a business standpoint, it's not that bad for business. The harder it gets for people to catch fish, the more the demand is going to be to have a guy like Captain Jeff that can take them out there. It goes back to the old adage, you know, think globally, but act locally. I'm a strong believer in working from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a strong believer in taking baby steps. And if you take the right small steps, then the big steps get easier and easier along the way. And I really don't think that if we put our minds to it as Floridians and we make it the number one priority, I don't think it's that difficult to do. I think we can restore the waters in Fort Lauderdale. I think Captains for Clean Waters can deal with Everglades National Park. And I think this infrastructure thing is the simplest of them all because we just have to make sure that the infrastructures are the way they're supposed to be. Unfortunately, these infrastructures are managed by small towns. People that run small towns aren't exactly what you would call rocket scientists. There's a reason they're running. There's a reason they're politicians in small towns. I would not exactly call them, you know, the the cream of the crop. But we need to get the best people in the entire world, right here in Florida, to figure this stuff out. And it's not that hard. So is there a plan currently? There's a plan to redo the um, sewage system and the infrastructure. And right now they say they're going to do it. There's been a plan for it. And there's been money allocated for it. And the mayor. A lot of money. Lots of money. 250 million to be exact in the last five years. Wow. In the city meeting the other night, the first question was, what happened to the 250 million? And we got some horseshit answer, a bunch of blah, 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 averages and this, that, and the other. And then they went on to tell us that they're going to rebuild the infrastructure, this one main pipe. Well, duh. You guys are freaking the city. That's what you guys are supposed to do the whole time. Like, that's news to us. What I want to know is, are you going to be held accountable for it next year? And what are we going to do to restore the wildlife in our small town? And those estuaries are small in Fort Lauderdale. We can do it there. Right. It's not like Everglades National Park where we need the friggin' the third of the state to make it happen. Also, too, it's, it's nice knowing that you have an incoming and a falling tide. So there's a flushing system, if you will, a natural flushing system right. that will help. It's not like a sitting lake. It's not like Titusville. Yeah. Or Okeechobee. Right. Yeah, but that water doesn't disappear. No, I know, but it, it can get diluted if it gets out. And if they stop what, where it's coming from, you know, you give it a, a, a period of time. Mother Nature's got a great way of healing herself. Let me, let, me, let me give you an example of how incompetent the government is. Do you know where they got the fish kill count from? Me. Me. <laughs> because when the, when the fish started dying... <coughs> I went down there and took pictures. And on the shoreline, we did an average six to eight fish per linear foot. 
they took my stats and published it all over the friggin' news. All that's what they used. My stuff. We didn't have some expert. No scientists. We, no, nobody. A fisherman that cares. Nobody even knew the number. That's why they went with mine. My numbers are simple. Look at my freaking phone. You see how many fish there are? That's about a foot. There's six dead fish per foot. That's where they got their information from. That's how incompetent. That's where we are as a state. We got the DEP. We got the EPA. We got OSHA. We got all these organizations. They are full of shit. They don't know nothing. FWC. Pathetic. Pathetic. It kills me. And the money is spent. These people are friggin' paying for their kids to go to school. In the meantime, they don't know the fish count. Yeah. They get it from me. That's quite sad. Yeah. It's retarded. But it's the way it is. And don't let anybody tell you it's different. We all sit back. We want the best. We want to have faith in this new governor or whatever. We want to have faith in our party. Right? Democrat, Republican. That's all a bunch of crap. Both of them have been in office, in and out, my whole life. And every year of my life, our waterways have been getting worse. You know, it's kind of interesting. You would think that there'd be some sort of a building moratorium down here. If you take a look at West Palm to Miami, it's insanely crowded. A cap. And right now in Boca, you go around, you see all these new sky rises, all these new apartment buildings. The infrastructures you're talking about cannot handle this. We've already got such bad water issues with the lack of fresh water and getting into Florida Bay. And we see all the golf courses and the nutrients from the golf courses being drained, you know, everywhere. You would think that, obviously, they're not thinking about the water and where all the sewage is going more so than how many more people we can put into this. It's all, it's all about, about the money. Small all area. about the next deal. Yeah. This state has not been just one giant real estate deal I, from its I, infancy. I mean, I'm I, I'm from a very small town, Aspen, Colorado, and there was a period of time where there was a building moratorium. You know, we don't have a lot of public land around Aspen. Actually, there's a lot of public land, not a lot of private land, so we're only limited to how much we can build, mm -hmm. which is actually nice because it can't, Aspen, you have a height limit, so you can't go up like you can in cities. But in this day and age, you know, January 2020, they're building more and more and more and more. And like you said, they're not even taking a look at the, they're not taking a look at the, at the beaches and the water and what's happening to the water. Which is the biggest lure in South Florida. Right. Which is, which, right. Which is, well, which is the catalyst for all that construction right. in the first place. You know, you take a look at Florida Bay and the Laura Keys, they're talking about, the money brought in is about $450 million a year for fishing. But the fish aren't going to be there if the water's not right. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a simple, it's simple thing that yeah. you would think that this should be higher on their priority list. I mean, not to be... Well, good for you for, for speaking up and putting this stuff on Facebook and, and, and rallying the troops. That army that we need to fight this is built one man at a time. And you're and leading one it. step at a time. And you, you've you got the biggest platform right now in South Florida being a guide. You've got a voice. Your Instagram stuff, you know, your podcast. I just, you know, personally want to thank you as not only being a friend and a great fisherman, but what you're doing for the cause down there. Well, thank you. I mean, it means a lot because, I don't know. It's just, um, 
It means a lot to me. So. You know, we had a, we had an interview recently with Sandy Moret, and he was awarded as the conservationist of the year by D- BTT just recently because of how much he fought and got the new SB10 in place for the reservoir below Lake Okeechobee. And I asked Sandy, I said, is this possibly your greatest achievement? That too, I ask you this. If you can fight this, if you can change this issue, possibly is this your greatest hurrah? Publicly, yeah. Publicly, for sure. If I, if I can just help a little bit, it would be a huge win. You know what I mean? Yeah. From the public side of things, yeah, there's some things that you know, personal things that you know, like my, like you know, the, my daughter or my wife, and they never would never come close, right? But publicly, if things change, it would it would be it would mean just the world to me. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So where where is the protest being held? So if people listen, they can January twelfth, which is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it at Cooley Hammock Park, which is actually the park right in front of the old tarpon bend. The place where we did YouTube videos where we caught so many 100-pound fish in a row that I was able to take a guy off the seawall and let him reel one in. I don't know if you remember that video. Yeah. The same corner where we caught multiple 20-pound snooks back to back to back to backs. The same corner that I grew up learning how to snook fish on. The same corner we did the power casting videos on. The same corner that we've yelled at the water taxis at the top for our lugs on. So we're having the on-land protest there. And then we're having an on-the-water protest, which I believe will be better than a couple hundred boats. And these boats will be strung out from the sandbar in front of the New River all the way to Tarpon Bend. Okay. And um, I'm hoping because of the boat exposure that the national media will cover it, which I'm sure will happen. Um. And hopefully from that point on, there'll be enough people in Broward County that will have the same goal as me, which is to have this priority of getting the waters cleaned up and the infrastructure done, and then the accountability and who's going to do it and when it actually is going to happen. Well, thank you, Jeff. Great podcast, yeah. guys. I really enjoyed it. You're, you're magical. <laughs> Love being around you. Run yeah. that dog, guys. Yeah. Thanks, bro. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Jeff Maggio has an incredible spectrum to his persona and fishing skills. We just love being in his presence. This is a man who is always fun and upbeat, but when you look into his eyes, you will see a deeply intense fisherman with a fiery heart for conservation. If you are enjoying the podcast, please help spread the word and leave a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. See you next time.